All right. Um, so welcome to the podcast um, where me and my guests, my fitness feelings will be discussing a few different aspects of the 2030 agenda, the World Economic Forum agenda, whatever you want to call it. Um, so thanks for joining me, Fitness Feelings. <laughs> thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah, so I actually wanted to start with um, something that you put out on Twitter uh, not too long ago, and that was about the legacy of COVID being essentially the mass agreement that it's okay for the state or the government to put external substances into one's body in the form of vaccination. And I was thinking about this and I was like, yeah, that's a really good point. Because if you were to go down any town or city in the Western world, uh, like three or four years ago, like 2018, 2019, and ask them, do you think it's okay to mandate um, <coughs> vaccines or inject substances into um, <coughs> one's body to protect um, the overall population from, you know, a bad flu or something of that similar risk level, which I think most people can agree, can agree now that COVID was. And the answer, I think, you would have got a lot more no's in, like, back in that time than you would now in 2022. And I think that's a problem, but um, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure how... I could argue why it's such a big problem, but I, I think you can. So I want you sort of to elaborate on, you know, um, why that is a big problem and why we should take it seriously. Sure. Um, I think it's a really good question. And uh, that, I think I first saw that, that phrasing of that idea from this guy real human Schwab or something. I really don't know much about him, but he's an excellent, uh, he's an excellent researcher who I follow on Twitter into a lot of these types of issues. Uh, but I just want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. So having said that, I think that there's, I think there's a few issues with it. I, I think the first basic and I think most basic problem with why it's so dangerous to have people in the context of COVID specifically, why this kind of mass agreement that the state can say in order to participate in public life, you have to inject not just a substance, but possibly like an infinite series of like updated kind of boosters or whatever in order to you know, keep your job, in order to go to the store, in order to travel, to leave the country. I mean, all kinds of, um, all kinds of different things. I think the first problem is that basically without, it dissolves bodily autonomy, right? And without any bodily autonomy, you really don't have any rights at all. Like that, that is the foundation for all civil liberties is the sense that your body is a kind of like inviolable boundary that to a large extent you control. And of course we do all exist together in a community and so forth, but nonetheless, the idea that you could just be required you know, to, to do that really was a very um, a very new thing, I think, in a lot of ways. And the fact that, as you said, COVID turned out to not be so dangerous and the so-called vaccines turned out not to be so effective. I mean, on the one hand, that's good because this whole thing kind of fell apart. But on the other hand, it's bad because what people actually agreed to was 
this, these mandates could be um, forced on people for a disease that just simply isn't very serious and for a product that doesn't really even work very well, right? Like the bar has been set so unbelievably low for what an effective, quote, vaccine is and for what a threat that warrants that that's big enough is. So I think that's kind of one dimension of it. The second dimension of it is that, I mean, in my opinion, there is a sort of unseen power structure that for, I think, various reasons is extremely interested in this, in transhumanism on the one hand and or what we might call transhumanism. And also you could call this eugenics, but I don't think that's quite actually the right word, like sort of basically attempts to control the population at a biological level. And what allowing this you know, vaccination thing to go through, and in fact, it's not even really a vaccine in a traditional sense, I think has opened the door for ex more experimentation like that, right? Like everyone kind of mass accepted this policy approach, which it's like, in the future, you know, I probably large numbers of people will continue to accept it in various ways. And so we're unfortunately, you know, the Overton window or whatever, however you want to say it, like has just been moved a little bit into a, a little bit down the line into a more favorable position for, you know, some groups that I think do not have our best interests at heart. And, and what's, what, how could it sort of open the door to other experimentation? Are you talking, you know, microchips? I mean, we hear people like Elon Musk talk about Neuralink. Um, could workplaces perhaps, you know, make employees wear certain devices so they can track how their employees are performing? Are you talking like that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that because what COVID did was and what everyone kind of the logic that everybody accepted was, is that if there if there's like strong enough, I mean, I didn't think it was strong, but if, if there's like a more a compelling moral reason, right, you can be you can be subjected to this basically medical experimentation, right? You know, so in other words, if you imagine like um, Elon Musk or some financial institution or something wants to basically put a chip inside you, which I there that is definitely something that David Rockefeller and Co. Um, has wanted for a very long time, in my opinion. I mean, he's no longer with us, but I'm sure that legacy sort of lives on. Um, imagine like if they just said we want to do that to like track you and you know monetize you or whatever people wouldn't have it but now it could be kind of framed as though if you don't accept this you're victimizing other people right like we have climate goals if you're not going to allow this tracker on you know to be injected into you or attached to your body or whatever in some way that measures all of your like electricity and movements to defeat climate change you're putting people's lives at risk right that's a much more compelling and more dangerous framework i think in my opinion mm. all right so you're talking about elon musk um and how he's sort of um <clears throat> you know part of this movement to um put microchips in people's brains i mean he's openly talked about it he's gone on joe rogan and said um yeah with this neural link the end goal will be to um enhance human cognivity um and that sounds good but who's going to have access to all the data um and you see this with musk right he appears really based and conservative on twitter i mean i guess people on 
our team, I guess you could say, uh, you know, are, are fans of what Elon Musk has to say. And I must admit it myself, some of the things he says I agree with. Um, but I can't help but look at, you know, what he does. I mean, don't listen to what people say. Look at what they do. Um, he's involved with this Neuralink program. And then you've got, you know, the, the whole Tesla thing with the driverless cars and it being electric and that sort of, you know, centralizes um, the idea of travel and um, it could um, potentially pose a threat to car ownership and that, that's sort of something that the World Economic Forum wants to get rid of, uh, private ownership of cars. Um, and, you know, this sort of green energy movement, he's also involved with that as well. So you can see he's got his fingers in, you know, these, I guess what you could say, World Economic Forum friendly pies. Um, what role do you think he's playing for the regime? Because I definitely think he's a part of it, but he's sort of trying to act as if he's on our team, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. I think one thing he's, in my opinion, definitely doing, and I would say I base this on SpaceX and on his tunnel company. So there's, um, is he's some kind of deep state military contractor. Right? It's not really credible to me that Tesla, which, you know, is a company that sells like a few electric cars that like don't even work all that well. He's like the richest person in the world. There's more going on there than that, right? I, what it is exactly, I don't know. But the space industry, NASA and like space tourism, I mean, that's all just a cover for the militarization of space, in my opinion, and for various technologies that are used to like shuttle troops and weaponize like satellites and, and God knows what else they're doing. I have no doubt that SpaceX is involved in that in some way, and the company is just basically a front. His tunnel company, there's a, it's like there's a guy on your Dolce base, like tunnels or something, something like that. He's done a ton of research into demonstrating that basically the United States federal government has created these elaborate, like secret tunnel systems for military purposes that we don't really understand. Um, I'm not particularly like expert in that sort of like research or anything, but I also, it's very interesting that his other, one of his other companies is like creating tunnels or whatever, the boring company under Los Angeles and that never really materialized. I, I find that, I find all that very suspect, um, particularly because he's also, all of his stuff is based around, you know, uh, Texas and to some extent California, which uh, if people are familiar with Carl Oglesby's work and thesis about the Yankee cowboy hypothesis, which in brief just kind of posited a divide in a kind of cultural and political divide amongst the capital owning class, part of which was this kind of uh, more militant, Texas, California wing that was opposed to the more um, waspish North, like Northeast U.S. Um, industrialists. Basically, I, I don't know. I, I get the sense that Musk is somehow a continuation or something of that kind of cowboy faction. That he's, he's somehow related to um, to that to that scene. What I think, but. That's all just speculation. The reality is just that the role he's performing is to make it seem like that there's people among the billionaire class and among the transhumanists 
who, as you said, are, quote, based or on our side or are normal or, you know, are cool or however you want to say it. And what that does is it's sort of like, I don't know, I think it has the effect of making it feel like people don't have to resist, we don't need to resist as much because Elon Musk is doing that for us, right? It's like we can kind of offload that responsibility onto these imagined protectors or, or whatever. Um, and then, of course, he never really comes through. You know, he didn't actually buy Twitter. <laughs> I mean, that, that whole people were so excited about that and literally nothing came of it. So you're saying that, like, he's sort of performing this role where it makes... I guess our team sort of think, oh, we can sit back and let Musk take care of things. Like, what, what, what do people like us need to do to stop the, you know, the 2030 agenda and um, stop the regime getting its way? Like, what, what should we be doing? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't know, but I have some kind of amazing answer to that. My gut instinct is, this isn't going to happen, but... If everyone just threw out their cell phones, this entire thing would just collapse. I mean, it would just immediately go away. So I think that would be the end of it. Literally, if everyone just said, I'm not using these cellular phones, and like 70% of the population just threw them into a river, we would see the total end of this insanity. I mean, that, that's not to say that new problems wouldn't emerge. They would. But this particular iteration of it would cease to be. I think short of that, the main answer, honestly, is just people have to not comply. They have to just be willing to not go along with these measures. I'm, you know, I'm not going to sign up for a CBDC crypto. People just have to not do it, you know? And I think there has to be a genuine spirit of kind of resistance that I think basically comes down to people have a large enough number of people have to be willing to die or be severely penalized rather than go along. And if that reaches a critical mass. There's just nothing they're going to be able to do. You know, they're going to have to just let it go. Like they did with the Canadian trucker thing, when it just became clear that if they really fought that, it would have been hugely problematic for them if they had to just give up, at least temporarily. Mm. So do you, do you think they had some wins with the Canadian trucker thing, like the fact that they were sort of able to normalize freezing bank accounts and stuff like that? Because I feel like they didn't... They didn't win, but I don't think they lost either. I would agree with that. I think that they, you know, loss would have looked like Trudeau getting, like, deposed in some popular movement and the complete, you know, just the total COVID lockdown program being utterly repudiated and, you know, banished from Canada. That didn't happen. I agree. I think what it was a kind of a stalemate in essence. I think they knew they couldn't push the truckers too hard because they would, it would look so bad and it would just generate so much more resistance. But on the other hand, what were the truckers really going to do? You know, I mean, they, they took it as far as they could, right? Which is that they could just camp out in those places and that was it. They, they weren't actually going to overthrow the government. Mm. Um. In our last discussion, we talked about how, you know, I guess this is a critical point for the regime, um, this next sort of five, ten years. Um, and it's, it's going to be that they're either going to get these digital control systems in place, you know, digital ID that's connected to social media and 
if you want to pay for things using your central bank digital currency, you have to be linked for that. And if you don't behave, then um, I don't know, um, you'll get the electricity cut off from you. You know, that sort of dystopian digital control grid. That's, I guess, their goal. And that's, um, you know, their vision of winning. But um, now why they want to get to that point, I mean, we can debate about whether it's financial or whether they just, you know, want to have control for the next 100, 200 years, whatever it is. Um, but on the other hand, like, they could lose in this next five to 10 years. And like, whether it's people finally realize that the smartphone is the devil and 80% of people throw their phones into the river, like you say, or, you know, enough people, like, as they push more and more over the next few years, more and more people wake up and you just sort of see like this worldwide sort of Canadian trucker resistance, uh, if you will, form. And, you know, the, the, the agenda or the regime collapses in that way. Um, so those are, I guess, the two outcomes. Um, so what would the consequences be for them if they... Uh, for us if they win and what are the consequences for us if they lose and the consequences for them if they lose because even if they lose i don't think you know everything's just going to be fine i mean there could be a, a massive financial crash could be a, a great depression i mean if they're going to lose they're going to try and bring us down with them <laughs> yes well i think the consequences for us if they really win it depends on exactly what the point of the digital control thing is. is. Is that just something they want in and of itself to kind of replace the much more effective um, television-based propaganda system that they used to have um, with this kind of punitive digital social credit type system? Or is it that the, you know, they, there is some kind of broader depopulation agenda or something that, um, you know, the digital thing is just a sort of way to make sure that that works, that they are able to implement that without totally losing control of everything. I don't really have those types of answers, but I mean, let's just say if they really win, I mean, it's, it's not going to be good. If, uh, truly, if these digital systems are um, deeply integrated into all aspects of our lives, so, such that almost every transaction, every kind of touch point of your life is tracked in a totalizing sort of digital system and can be, you know, not just monetized, but also restricted. There's really not going to be, it's going to be really hard to resist that because they're going to just make it impossible to live, to have any kind of quality of life if you resist, you know, and they're going to allow probably just enough resistance so that people feel like there's hope or that there's whatever, but in reality, there it won't really be there. So I think, I mean, unfortunately, I do fear that if they win in the next five, ten years, it's going to be a while before a new, new contradictions emerge within their control system that can be exploited. I think if we win, it depends on the scope of the victory. I think it's very possible and maybe even the most likely scenario that it's just this thing ends at a stalemate, that they sort of partially get this agenda, but there's large parts of it that they're not able to really get because it's so, it's such, a, it's an overreach in my opinion. 
And in that case, it could look, I think, very much like just a continuation of the dynamic we have right now, where it's just like this sort of fragmented, stale, postmodern feeling sort of stalemate where it feels like no one ever really wins and nothing ever really happens. And it's just kind of like, um, feels kind of miserable and meaningless and just increasingly so. I think the other thing is if they really lose and like the banking system collapses, I mean, that's just going to be a, who the hell knows that that's going to be totally like apocalyptic because everyone, everyone who has anything, it's all based on the, this fake currency system, you know, which is now totally disconnected from any real value. And so once, once all that vanishes, once the United States is no longer flying around the world, forcing everyone to take these fiat currencies and they're it's all worthless. I mean, I have absolutely no idea what that will look like. It will, it will be, I mean, we could see a complete reformation of like global power, which I guess some people kind of are predicting that. Mm. Um, yeah, because um, from what I've heard from people like Fabio Vigi, um, the time period we have lived in up until maybe you could say 2020, um, like that sort of freedom that the United States have and the Western world has had for, you know, 200, 300 years, whatever it is, it's quite unique when you look back at the entire history of humanity, um, you know, from what I've heard. Um, so what, why do you think we've had, you know, freedom during this recent period in history? Um, and is this something that you think is going to change? Like, I know you sort of just said that you can't really tell and everything's up in the air. But um, if if you have a sense that it's about the change, do you think that the freedom that we had was, you know, sort of us, you know, fighting for it? Or was it some sort of ploy from these, you know, powerful families that had world domination for hundreds of years? Have they sort of, you know, allowed this freedom to happen because they want, you know, even more control in the next hundred or two hundred years? Yeah, I mean, I think that that when you think about this question of like freedom, I mean, it's it's a complicated issue, like freedom. What is it? How we had it, and so forth. I would say that in the twentieth century. I don't think we, in my opinion, I mean, we certainly had a lot more freedoms than we do now. I think there's no question about that. At least Did the we second have half. second half? Sorry, the second half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Second half of the 20th century. Generally, there was a lot of what we think of now as being freedom. I think the problem is, I don't. I'm I'm a student of. Uh, I may have mentioned in a previous conversation, and people definitely know from my Twitter of this French. Uh, theorist and anthropologist Rene Girard. And so I tend to think about these issues through the lens of his um, mimetic theory. And I would say on that point that I don't think that a free society in the sense that libertarians, like contemporary libertarians talk about it, is possible. I mean, I think that's a, it's a pretty accurate and good economic philosophy in some ways. But the freedoms that we enjoyed, let's say, from 1950 on, were partially a function of the fact, and, and also just prosperity, right? Just, you know, general economic prosperity, 
were largely a function of, one, the fact that the entire world, except for the United States, was decimated by World War II, and there basically wasn't anywhere else in the world that was really particularly productive. So everything had been made here. This is where, I mean, this is where the United States is where it's all happening, right? And so we reaped huge benefits from that um, in material terms. But, but then second, that it's sort of like those freedoms that, that emerged, they had their foundation in a, in, in a kind of like the remnants of a sort of more traditional culture, a more traditional European culture that sort of was the foundation for that. And I think there's a way in which as people became freer and became more free thinking and they started to critique and sort of understand that, hey, you know, maybe some of these assumptions we've been making, for example, about people's, you know, race or sex or whatever, maybe those are unfair or, you know, uh, they're biased or they're wrong, um, and sort of deconstructing all that stuff, what ended up happening was you destroyed the traditional foundation of the society. And so I think now what we're left with is kind of like nothing, you know, like there's no... Um, there's no, there's no cultural order, right, to sort of organize and limit human activity, right, like to sort of to prevent people from fighting each other, for lack of a better word, like in Girardian terms. And so the only way, so, so we replaced culture essentially with like the market and with institutions, right? And I think that is a huge part of the problem is that without a functional culture, we, we're sort of like, we're just attempting to like make institutional bureaucracies serve the same function. Um, and it's, I know, it's not really working in my opinion for people at the, at the moment, but it's not clear what to do because we can't really go back and it's not clear how to go forward. So I think a lot of the struggles that we're facing right now are sort of like the inheritance of this great Western experiment where we sort of freed ourselves really from what it seemed like the kind of shackles of the past. But I think we're now kind of realizing that like what those things, those sort of, uh, those traditions were serving a purpose that we didn't fully understand. Um, you, you're talking about how culture has sort of morphed into institutions uh, is is sports a good example of that? Like, you know, NBA, you know, football, soccer, that sort of thing. Like, is it because, like, as you're saying, like, over the past 50, 70 years, things have become more meaningless. Uh, is, is that why, I guess, sports have become so much more popular during that time? Just as an example? I think sports are actually a very good example of something close to what I mean when I say more of a traditional culture. I mean, every culture has sports and, and games yeah. and they're, they're all somewhat similar. I mean, they're not exactly, like, of course the rules are different and so forth, but there's very similar structures in all, in all of those um, types of activities. Whether you look at, you know, American football or, you know, at those at weird Aztec like ball games and stuff. I mean, there's very similar dynamics. So I would say, I think sports are kind of like, in some ways, kind of a last remnant in some sense of what we're losing. And they definitely are being commercialized and institutionalized, but in some sense, you know, the games remain somewhat the same. I mean, basketball is still basically just, you know, 
pretty similar to what it was 50 years ago. Um, I, when I say institutionalization, I mean something more like, think of a good example. Like, so my grandparents are from like the very deep South and that long before I was even born, they moved to New York and they lived there for like, I don't know, five years or something. And my grandma would, was able to, like, because in New York, like the stores were very small, um, she, you know, you couldn't fit like those giant uh, cribs or whatever, like strollers, right? And they, they wouldn't all fit in the store. So women would just leave their babies in the strollers on the street while they went in and did their shopping. And they would come out and like get their child. And everyone just understood there was absolutely no one was going to steal your kid. No one would even think about doing something weird or inappropriate, you know, right, or whatever. But, you know, if you, you would never be able to do that today. Like, in fact, if you did it today, you would probably get, like, investigated by Child Protective Services. So, like, once there is this, this common kind of high trust, you know, just sort of, like, cult, basically structure, like, understood structure in place that that was okay now that's all broken down and so it's like you have to try to enforce those types of rules with like police and so forth and it just doesn't really you know it just doesn't it's not very effective you know oh yeah i just wanted to ask you briefly you mentioned um nasa um being sort of like the militarization of space and um elon musk um with his SpaceX sort of being a part of that. Um, I, I, I want to get your opinion on the moon landing. Do you think um, they really landed on the moon? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, no, I don't think that they did. I, I think there's a chance that there's, you know, some sort of esoteric explanation, some sort of some aspect of the moon landing that we weren't told about and to cover it up. They made a bunch of fake photos and videos and, you know, there's some missing information that explains everything and maybe it did happen. But do I think that the moon landing occurred in the way that the official story is? Absolutely not. I mean, it makes, literally, it makes no sense at all, at all to me. And no one has ever been able to explain it in a way that makes it make sense. Um, why do you think they faked it, though? Like, what was the motive behind faking it? Assuming well, that they did. assuming that they did, um, I think there's, I think there's a few reasons, maybe. But though, for example, uh, David McGowan's one of his, his uh, I guess, his hypotheses about why they faked it is they were essentially trying to cover up revelations that were coming out about the Phoenix program which for people who aren't familiar, that was, that was a kind of, I think it was proto, pre-Gladio, I think. It was basically this like psychological war torture operation that was done, um, that the CIA and the US military was doing in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War. Essentially trying to terrorize the Vietnamese population, doing some really fucked up and like sick things into, um, you know, resist, like, uh, essentially, you know, being more amenable to rule by the United States and to resist communism. And a lot of it was actually based on tactics that the communists were using. So there was kind of a mutual escalation there. But a lot of revelations about that stuff were coming out. And McGowan points out 
that a lot of the moon landing, the timing of the moon landings, like almost perfectly correlates to these Phoenix program leaks, right? So I think his thesis is basically that they put that whole show on to distract people from what was really happening, right? To cover up the um, abuses and so forth that would have harmed the war effort. And it, I think I think his argument is that once that all was out and kind of over, they just stopped doing it. You know, we've never been back since. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Even before COVID, when I wasn't too, I guess, red-pilled, you could say, I, I had like doubts about the moon landing because I was thinking, why haven't they gone back since? I mean, you'd think the technology is so much more better now and they could, you know, do a 21st century version of it, but... Um, you would think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They haven't done it. Um, no, and no other country has either. You know, that's, uh, to me, that's always such a suspicious element. It's like, wouldn't the Chinese do it? You know, I mean, would, like, why doesn't anyone else, like, go? You know, but, like, they, they never do. Mm. Um, so we'll move on to transhumanism now. We talked a little bit about Elon Musk, but... Um, over the past, I guess, five, 15 years, you could say, there's been this obvious sort of push towards this transhumanism agenda. And I guess the genesis of that can be seen with stuff like the transgender um, movement, um, technology such as wearables that track bodily activity. And maybe you can argue mRNA vaccines, which, you know, program human RNA to work in a different way to what it's naturally supposed to do. Um, so I think those type of agendas and technologies can be seen as a genesis of that movement. And like, just think about it, 15 years ago, there wasn't someone like Elon Musk talking about putting chips in computer, uh, putting computer chips in people's brains. Like Bill Gates wasn't talking about that 15 years ago. Um, and, and at the World Economic Forum, they talk about similar things. So. There's clearly been this push over um, <clears throat> the last 15 years or so um, when it comes to transhumanism. Um, why has why this been happening and why is there suddenly this feverish push for it now at this point in time? Yeah, there's a few different theories on that. And I mean, one theory I think that's very good is the one that's offered by that Russian political theorist who's daughter was unfortunately killed in that like basically terrorist attack um alexander dugan he relates it to this idea that the underlying philosophy of in his words you know liberalism right or of the western europe and america australia and so forth is that liberalism is all about totally freeing the individual from every kind of constraint and that the final constraint is sort of like your humanity itself, right? So in other words, thinking about back to some of your, your questions about, you know, we had this brief period of freedom, right? That kind of came before a lot of restrictions, you know, whether it was the feudal system or, you know, everyone was very kind of set in their place. There wasn't this idea that you could achieve anything, do anything, be anyone. That, that was something that was not a part of traditional culture for the most part. So it's sort of like we, we keep progressing and sort of tearing down the past 
and deconstructing the past. And you eventually arrive at a point where the past has been completely deconstructed. It's totally gone, right? So what is left? Well, there's the body, right? And there's your humanity, which are like, those things are intimately related in, in my opinion. And so that's kind of the last frontier in some sense, the last thing to conquer is like our nature basically, which I think, I think I do, I don't know that I totally agree with Dugan, but I do think that he really is onto something with that. And that the sort of gender ideology, biosecurity are all kinds of gateways into this transhumanist program of, of um, you know, of disembodiment, basically, which is sort of always a fantasy in these things that we're going to upload our consciousness to a machine or you're going to become a hologram or some kind of, I have no idea if those things are possible. It strikes me as very likely they aren't possible. Um, so in that sense, I think it also serves almost a kind of religious purpose for these, for these people. Certainly for our kind of mid-level sorts of people in the regime, they, I think, definitely really buy into that, like really buy into the idea of like, I'm going to make myself into a computer and like become, try to become immortal. Mm. Um, yeah, so we'll just go back to, um, I, I guess the internet, because um, last time we chatted, you talked about how the internet has sort of thrown a spanner into the works of um, television and radio when it comes to um, using media as a population control mechanism. Um, and I was thinking about this and I was, because I have my suspicions that the internet is probably ultimately like some sort of deep state military invention. Um, but a as you say, it, like it's, it's made it harder for them to control populations in the way that television and radio did. So I was thinking, well, why would they have made it like so decentralized and free over the past 30 years or whatever it's been that we've had the internet. Um, if ultimately what they want to do is, you know, keep populations in line and control them. And I was thinking, well, in order to get people away from the televisions, you've got to get them addicted to the internet first um, when it comes to social media. And I, I guess the, the, the speed of the internet now, I mean, you can just watch whatever movie you want instantly, listen to whatever music you want instantly, all that sort of thing. Um, and I'm thinking is, is now the point where like in this, you know, uh, 2030, uh, decade where they, you know, really clamp down and get their digital control systems in place. Cause they know people are addicted to the internet now, and this is their chance to, you know, get that control back that they once had with television and radio. Is this what they're doing? Um, Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to that question. It's a good question. Let me start by saying, I I think it's just a fact that it was. I mean, I think it was um, ARPA, right? I think it was or ARPAN or whatever. But it's sort of, I think it's like the Advanced Research Projects Agency. I, I was. Um, is that? I think that's that's in the Defense Department or funded by the Defense Department or something. And ARPANET was the technical foundation for the internet. So I think it is just actually a fact, which, you know, it just gets pointed out by certain Twitter factions quite a bit that the internet was created essentially by the United States deep state post-World War II. So I think it's pretty much, it's undeniable that they did that. Although of course, 
its more recent iterations, you can debate the extent to which Google and Facebook and these various other companies that really pioneered bringing the internet out to people in the way that it is now into universalizing it basically, whether or not that was like some deep state project or just, you know, humans sort of following this new technology, the way we often have, this new media technology. Um, but as to why they, I, I don't know if people are, if, there's a guy, James Poulos, he's a, a theorist and like a researcher, I think at the Claremont Institute, and he's written a lot about this very question of the transition from the television dominated world to a kind of digitally dominated world. And I think he, his conceptualization of it is some of the best that I've seen, which is something like when the internet was created, right? Everyone imagined, particularly the kind of the Davos set, you know, the World Economic Forum and so forth, that type of person. I think they imagined that the internet would be kind of like television on steroids, that it would take the kind of propaganda system that television represented, the media system that, of television, and would like be its final culmination, right? And kind of lead to an ability to like universalize their ideas. But as we discussed last time, not quite the, it's not to say that the opposite thing happened, but that's actually not what occurred. And I genuinely just think they, they made a mistake. Like, they were just a stumbling block for them. Like, they, I don't think they really are omnipotent. I think that consequences of the internet, which is what it did allow for this, like, vast level of tracking and, and so forth, for everything you do to be remembered in a system, analyzed and so forth. But, um, you know, it also meant that people could just freely do their own research very easily, right? And people started finding out that all kinds of things we've been told um, actually aren't true, you know, and that, and it, and it also had the effect, I think, of it took the, like, if you think about television as a media format, right, um, it took that media format, and this is kind of Poulos' argument, to its extreme, right? Like, suddenly every single person is a broadcaster, right? Like, you, like you're literally a, a broadcaster right now. Like, you know, 70 years ago, it was unthinkable that you could have your own, like, media program that you could broadcast out to thousands of people who might see it, right? So it sort of like overloaded us with that. And I think one of the things that happened is people became kind of disenchanted with it. People kind of started to see like, huh, like, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't actually make a lot of sense. And maybe, you know, what I see kind of on these screens isn't necessarily real. You know, what if it's not real? Like, what if it's fake? And um, I think they're... I think they're trying to compensate for that with these with these digital systems. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's it's like what you're saying. It's more of their way of you know they sort of unleash the beast and they're trying to get control of the beast together because they've lost control of the beast that they've created. That's a good way of putting it. Um, just back to smartphones for a second, because you said like I guess that the best way to um, deal with these agendas that are being brought on to us is to literally just throw your smartphone in the river and I quite like that and I, I agree with it um, and there's other things too that people can do is just you know use cash as much as you can you know um, <clears throat> put your money into real tangible things and businesses just that sort of thing just those little things that help a little bit but when it comes to smartphones I'd like you to elaborate a bit more on why you know 
they are sort of the foundation of, I guess, what you could say, the fourth industrial revolution. And why would it be a good idea for someone to, I mean, it's really hard at the same time in this um, era to give up your smartphone. I mean, some people literally need one for their jobs. That's the, <laughs> It's sort of de facto mandatory. Um, but for people who um, have the chance to at least reduce their use or give it up, why should people consider doing that? Well, I think one huge reason, which I think everyone knows, but we just sort of like kind of pretend we live our lives as if it's not true or as if it doesn't somehow doesn't matter. It isn't having any real effect is just that prior to smartphones, it was just not able like the amount of data that you could get about a population was really limited. You just you couldn't really track people. You couldn't really you know, you could if you wanted to spy on someone individually, of course you could. But you know, there just wasn't, it wasn't like everyone was carrying a computer connected to a giant network, right? To be monitored and, and mined for information, which can then be weaponized against the population itself. I mean, that's just like, you know, a computer was an incredibly rare thing, even for like most of the history of computers, or at least in the 20th century, um, it was. So I think that's like that's one huge problem. It, it unlocks the ability for so much control because you can have things like QR codes and you can track people and so forth. I mean, it's, it's you know, yeah, it's really not good in that respect. But I think I think the other thing that's really bad about it is that if you can, you can just it, it allows you. It has like an agitating effect on people, right? Like when you think about the design element, like the design aspect of most smartphones compared even to like previous personal computers like or like uh, Palm Pilots, if anyone remembers those. The, a smartphone is designed almost like a slot machine, right? I mean, it, it's designed to be a, like addictive, as you said, where the scroll and you kind of like pull down on your Twitter feed or your Instagram feed and it refreshes, you know, and maybe you'll see something that you get a kind of a reaction from. Like it's designed like, it's designed to just keep you sucked into this virtual game, basically. And I don't I just don't think that the consequences of that are have even been fully understood by our societies. Of essentially like everyone lives in a digital casino controlled by like five giant companies. You know? I mean that's just not good in my opinion. It's how do you have a an embodied, interconnected civilization when when everyone is constantly stimulated by these, you know, this essentially like weaponized platform, you know, it's like you can never, you can never just like rest. I mean, it's, it's a trite observation at this point, but I really think that it is constantly driving people into a state of anxiety, which makes it easier to get people to then basically transplant or transpose that anxiety onto things like COVID or climate change or terrorism or whatever. And so it creates this vicious feedback loop where people are anxious, they give people a crisis to sort of temporarily alleviate, manage that, and then the whole thing just starts over again. Mm. That's a really good point that you made. Uh, just thinking about it, I mean, I, I find Twitter much more addictive when I'm on my phone than when I'm on the computer. Like, but it doesn't 
quite make sense because it's the same thing, but for whatever reason, they designed it on the phone, so it's much more addictive. Um, do you have that similar experience yourself? I do, and I actually have okay, like I have a, some advice about that. It's like a very minor thing that people can do, but I do this fairly frequently, and I find it helpful. You can turn your phone onto just like black and white. It's pretty amazing to just like feel the difference when you interact with like Twitter when there's no color versus when there is. Because like when you take the color away, a lot of the weird design things they've done to like hook you into it just like goes away. It's pretty pretty interesting. Mm, yeah, I, I, but I do agree with you. Yeah, um, I just wanted to ask you um, about, I guess, the libertarian ideology. And you said before how you don't think that system can work. You know, the pure anarchist type system. Um, you, you're saying that that is something that probably can't function properly from an economic perspective. Is that um, what you alluded to before? Um, how do I say this? What I mean is that like Gerard's hypothesis about government, which most kind of libertarian, like truly libertarian or like anarcho capitalist kind of thing that we just get rid of the government or you know that kind of thing the reason why i don't think that works is because i don't think it really addresses the reason why we have government which is that basically they exist to prevent conflicts from spiraling out of control in like reciprocal exchanges of violence right so this was a huge problem in early like early human communities and it's like a big problem in america for example like in the black community, in like urban areas. There's like tons of violence and there's, you know, the government is of course involved in their lives through welfare and, you know, drug, the drug war and so forth. But it's, the government doesn't act as this point that ends conflict. And so what I, what I mean by that is like, if someone kills my brother, right, in the American system, that person is charged with a crime, right? And they're prosecuted. And then they either go to jail or they're maybe sentenced to the death penalty or, or whatever the case may be, or they get off, right? But either way, that's the end of it. I mean, I may be personally devastated by that, but that's the, the conflict doesn't go past that, right? Um, you know, in most of human history, what might have happened then was that person kills my brother, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to kill them, or I'm going to kill their someone in their family. And then they're going to come back and get revenge on me, right? And this, this sort of cycle of revenge uh, just has a way of perpetuating itself and like sucking everybody up into these conflicts that were really extremely detrimental, uh, particularly if you imagine like a, a small group of people kind of living together, you know, in a pre-industrial setup where like manpower was really important, like you had to farm or blacksmith or, or, or whatever. So I think the problem with the libertarian position is that it correctly understands that the state is the cause of a huge number, if not the majority of like the problems that we face, right, are all related to government interference in various ways. But it misses that the institution of the government is serving is serving a function beyond exploitation. And it's just to make sure that conflict 
does not spiral out of control and basically the community destroys itself, which would be the worst possible sort of like outcome. And I think that basic issue is something that like, the anarchist position has never really dealt with, honestly. It just like it imagines that if you get rid of the government, you get rid of all the rules and everything, people will just live together in harmony. And I, I just don't think people are built like that. Yeah. Um human nature just doesn't work like that i tend to agree yeah covid has yeah like i guess after covid you know more people think that libertarianism is a solution um and and that's good because obviously what 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 we're living through now in this sort of like 2030 decade is not great at all so what, what what's the ideal system is it like the Switzerland model um, a lot of people um, that I listen to say the Switzerland model is probably the best way to go about it would you agree with that like when it comes to an economic and a um, democratic systems I mean I quite like a lot of things about the setup of Switzerland and I'm actually not opposed to like Switzerland setup really at all I think it's very good in a lot of ways I think the issue that you run into with these types of and I think just everyone that runs into this issue with these type of comparisons is that, you know, Switzerland is like a tiny, mostly ethnically homogenous country that's surrounded by mountains on all sides and basically has a giant banking, you know, structure where they somehow are like the world's bank and like they're, you can't invade it anywhere. You know, most people just don't live under those conditions. You know, I mean, I'd love to live in like a beautiful mountain country with like a bunch of, you know, my sort of own people and like <laughs> no one can invade and we have like this robust industry that doesn't even really require us to make much of anything. We just sort of make in take the interest or whatever off the money people are storing in our banks. Um, so I think that kind of creates a foundation for Switzerland that maybe influences it. Um, it's just like, I don't know that you could do that in, you know, uh, Wyoming or something, right? I mean, they don't, how, how, how's that going to, how would that work there? But I do think that there's that, that there's a lot of things about Switzerland, such as my understanding is that, you know, there's a, a lot of people get like basic kind of weapons training and that there's not sort of, um, there's not the same kind of insane federal sort of deal that we have, at least in the United States. I think that's all positive. But my issue, I think it's really good that people are starting to realize like, okay, wow, you know, the libertarian position, there's a lot more truth there than we were able to admit or understand. I think that's a positive development, but it's a bit like the libertarian position like kind of already didn't work. You know, like if you go back to the founding of the United States, like we already had a time in the United States where most people had that type of a philosophy, like where, you know, you had to kind of be your own government, which was sort of the idea of classical liberalism, like virtuous self-government. And like that's how, and we, that didn't really sustain itself, you know? And so I don't know that returning to a point along our path to, to where we are now is really a solution because it already didn't work, you know? Um, my personal view is just that 
everything needs to be massively decentralized. I mean, I just don't think, I think that's got to be like the starting point. People need to be allowed to exit these huge national, like kind of like the United States or the European Union. People need to be able to leave those things and form their own little community where they can run it however they want. I, I don't see any way that it can work on a global scale. I just don't think that's possible. Which is unfortunately, that's, that's like the main thing that we're up against is just i think is global governance you know like a, a world government yeah um i tend to agree um i just want to ask you um i just want to talk about trump again because just after we spoke last time um there was the fbi raid on trump's house what do you think that's all about oh god it's so hard to know i mean i think Part of that is it's propaganda that is meant to scare you. It's kind of like, you know, if they can do that to the pre former president of the United States, like they can do it to you, you know, right? Like Trump, for all of his, whatever his flaws or pluses may be, is far more powerful than I am, mm. you know? So if they can harass him, you know, we're all kind of at risk. Um, I think another dimension of it, is that, I mean, my personal view of it is that it makes Trump seem like he's more of a dissident. You know, it makes him seem more like an outsider than I think he really is. I, it's so, yeah, the specifics of it, I just like, I don't really know, but the net effect of the FBI thing seems to be like to solidify, like to solidify support around him sort of in terms of the conservative base in the united states and then also to solidify his opponents against him even more so it's like you have another kind of divide and conquer situation sort of brewing i think i mean if trump runs for office again and he even if he doesn't win but especially if he wins i mean the people are going to go insane here i mean you know i don't i did the population like i think a lot of people are going to lose their minds in all honesty. Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, you're right there. Whether it's by accident or design, um, the incident did, you know, garner support for Trump and make, makes him seem like this um, dissident and someone who's, you know, trying to drain the swamp. Um, and also, you know, it, um, like, as you say, it makes um, people against him uh, hate him even more because they think he's a crook or whatever um so j just one more point on trump i um i guess it doesn't matter if he knows it or not but i i think it's clear like he, he's useful to the regime in many ways like what what's his role and what, what are they using him for yeah well one common like kind of right-wing talking point and i consider myself conservative or right-wing but a common talking point is something like everything that trump everything that would that everything that happened at the end of the trump administration that's covid and the vaccines and all that stuff that would have just happened four years earlier if hillary clinton had been elected president and that's a very common view i think that trump held that off for four years and then they just screwed him at the end I, I don't agree with that. I, I tend to think that 
which is not, which I, I have no idea what Trump's view or role or he could be perfectly legitimate as far as I know. But the effect of him being in office um, when the COVID stuff happened, I think was necessary for his success in an American context. I don't think that, you know, the red states, people where it's like you have to close your business and wear a mask and, you know, we're locking you down. There is not a chance any of those states would have gone along with that if it was Hillary Clinton. I mean, it just would not have worked. They would have refused, and the whole thing could never have gone forward. It was only able to work because a Republican was in office, and the red states went along with it because of the leadership in the White House, and the blue states went along with it because it's the kind of thing they want to do anyway, basically. It's very similar to how you know, Obama got so much warmongering done because the Democrats couldn't really complain about it because he's a Democrat. Right. And the Republicans don't really complain about it too much because they're kind of okay with that anyway. Right. um, Oftentimes, someone in office, like, uh, oftentimes I think these things work a little bit almost the opposite of the way people tend to think. Mm. I think, like, Trump, for example, he's the one that did that declaration of emergency that unlocked all that insane, you know, Fed pump that bailed out every state and allowed them to lock down the economy. Without that declaration of emergency, it just couldn't have happened. So I was going to end the podcast there. However, me and Fitness Feelings did end up talking for a little bit longer. And I did ask him about what he might like to talk about in the future. And I thought his answer was worth sharing. So here's two to three minutes of Fitness Feelings um, answering that question. But I think, I think um, certainly like climate dealing more specifically with this, I think, coming uh, climate situation, I think could be very productive. Because that seems like something they're really digging their heels into that. Like, I get the sense that they're going to be, even if they do more disease stuff, the climate thing is going to be a media project, a kind of a propaganda project, like for the near future. And so I think it'll almost certainly still be in the news. And probably, and it could also have a huge effect on all of our lives, you know? I mean, the energy rationing, the cars, I mean, it's like a whole new, insane, COVID-esque kind of thing. And I think there's some really interesting questions about, like, to what extent does, like, this energy thing, you know, a lot of people think it's, like, it's all bumbling and incompetence and, you know, that they're, they're powerless to control this, like, surge in energy prices. Other people might say that, like, this is something they've wanted for a long time, right? And, you know, we're, it's another facet of the agenda that's kind of, like, being implemented sort of as we speak. Are there any good commentators when it comes to climate that you really respect? Um, honestly, no. I mean, there actually is this one guy, and I've been, I I can't remember his name for the life of me. I've tried trying to remember it uh, if you remember um, that message me um he's he's i will or his twitter handle or whatever yeah but if you there's kind of like two perspectives i think that are somewhat interesting there is if i can find this other guy i'll send it to you and there's a dude he's not on twitter i don't even think but it, it's somewhat i will, will warn you it's a little terrifying there's a guy guy mcpherson he's a professor of uh, something at like asu but he's a kind of like he I think there's some, he makes some arguments about climate change. He thinks that climate change and global warming is very real. 
but he disagrees with the mainstream narrative and think in, in the sense that he basically thinks that the damage has already been done and like basically total destruction of like the human species is fairly imminent. And he argues it pretty rigorously. I think there's some really interesting um, stuff that could potentially be discussed kind of about like the extent to like what what's going on there? Like, you know, what do these kind of elite regime people really think about climate and ecological collapse? Because like, is it, is it totally fake or is the, or do they actually think it may be real in part? Or I don't know, because I know a lot of people think that the, like chemtrails and all that stuff. I got a theory I've seen about that is that, um, this is from that legal man guy and he, he's linked to some resources about it before that like a lot of the spraying and like weird, like geoengineering and like weather stuff is about trying to combat climate change is that they're essentially trying to like spray the shit into the air to like reflect particles, like back up and try to manipulate the weather to keep temperatures down. And then there's this like fake story about CO2 on the other hand to like distract people. I'm not saying it's all true, but there's a kind of just a lot of interesting different, um, I don't know, avenues to explore there. And they're clearly very concerned with it. So yeah, that was my discussion with my fitness feelings. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're already following him on Twitter, but if for some reason you're not, you can find him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at fitnessfeelings with a Z. And if you wish to do so, you can follow me on Twitter at Josh underscore Luti. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and tune in for more discussions like this in the coming weeks and months.